Shalom everyone, I'd like to take some ideas from the parasha and as usual take a, a seed from the parasha and go with it, see how it grows, see what we can uh, learn from it, where it, it will take us. So I'd really like to focus on the first sentence, the first verse of the, of the parasha. Um, maybe even on one letter from the verse in the parasha. It begins like this. I'll read in Hebrew, then I'll try a very literal translation into English. And he called to Moshe, and God spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying... Okay, and then we have the rest of the book of, uh, of Vayikra. And there's a few things that kind of jump out when you, when you look at the verse in the parasha. Um, I'll just point out two, and that's going to be w developed by the commentators that we're going to see. The first is that we have three verbs of speaking in this sentence. We have... Uh, he called to Moshe, and God spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying. So we have calling, speaking, and saying are three verbs. Um, in each part of the sentence, someone is missing, right? It begins, and he called to Moshe. So it doesn't say who is calling to Moshe. And then it says, and God spoke to him. We have God speaking. It doesn't say to who. And then we have saying. as kind of an introduction to the rest of the, of the book. Um, so that invites interpretation. And also, if you look at the way the words are written in Hebrew, in the Torah, the first word, vayikra, and he called, the, the last letter of the word, aleph, is written very small. Yeah, it's kind of, um, it's like a little aleph hanging in the air, okay? And uh, that also obviously invites interpretation. So let's look at one of these interpretations, okay? Um, we'll start with that idea of the first aleph um, hanging in the air, right? So um, Rashi says... Vaikra, so he had this calling out to Moshe. Before, before Moshe is spoken to, he's called. And Rashi says that this calling happens every time that Moshe is spoken to. First he's called. Right? First there's uh, some kind of, I don't know, we can imagine Moshe, Moshe, <laughs> and then whatever needs to be said by God to Moshe. Okay, so there's a calling that comes before the speaking. Um, and that, that's already interesting. Um, and he says, this is, this is what happens with angels too. Angels call to each other. Right? The angels call each other, um, saying, holy, holy, holy. But first they call out to each other. So there's a, the calling is, is different to the speaking. Right? It's something that precedes the message, is a call. Um, and he, he compares this to um, f 
non-Israelite prophets, right? Where, um, where God happens to them, right? Yeah, you have God speaking to other prophets. There's Bilam, for example, is a, is a non-Jewish prophet, and he speaks to God. Um, but the the way the that speech is introduced is with these words vayikar elokim el bilam and god ha- happened to bilam right so it's almost the same letters as vayikra as as calling but it's not calling it's vayikar okay god god happened to meet bilam and that's seen as as the opposite of calling it's just a message without a connection um and it's also connected to the word um, mikre or keri. Right? Mikre is, um, is like randomness. Ra- just something that happens to, to occur, an occurrence, chance. Right? It's, related, it's related to Purim, first of all. Um, and it's also related to the, the enemies of Israel, Amalek. Right when when the people of Amalek attack Israel, um, the way it's described in the Torah is Asher karcha baderech veizanev becha. Amalek attacked Israel. He he happened to you. He surprised you as you were exiting Egypt when you were um, hungry, and he he attacked you from from behind okay but it's something about uh chaos almost in, in that in that kind of uh um, occurrence okay so there's a kind of there's things that happen in the world or there's ways that god speaks in the world which just happen and there's ways that god speak in the world which are preceded by a call and that's what happens. That's the call that cries out at the beginning of um, our parasha. Vaikra el Moshe. And God called to Moshe. Okay. Now, um, <laughs> you think that's abstract? Um, so Rashi continues. He says, Vaikra el Moshe. is calling out to to Moshe, why does it say it like that? Why is it introduced like that? It comes to teach that the calling out was only to Moshe. Okay, there was a voice that went out, but only Moshe could hear it, and no one else could. Okay, so it wasn't. It doesn't have to do with decibels and physics. Right? There's a voice. Of God, and only Moshe can hear it. Okay, and then um, there's a midrash, there's an interpretation or tradition um, quoted by Rashi, which is very strange. It says so. Everything that God said was preceded by this calling. What about the pauses in between the speech? Right. If you look at the way the the Torah is written or the book of, of uh, Vayikra is written, you have 
paragraphs. And in between each paragraph is a, is a pause, is a break. So we know everything that God said, each of these paragraphs was, uh, was preceded by a call to Moshe. But what about the silence in between? Was that preceded by a call? And uh, the Midrash says, no, it wasn't. The calling was only for the speech. That's why it says, um, uh, And God spoke to him to say that only the speech was preceded by a call. So why are there breaks? Why is there silence in the Torah? It's a strange question, right? Why, why is the way the Torah is written is this important, holy, divine uh, commandments and speech. But why is there also breaks in between the paragraph? Between the paragraphs? Why, why, why is there silence? Um, and it, it can't, the answer given is that he comes to teach us that Moshe needed some time to understand what was said to him, to, um, to, to make sense of each paragraph and each subject that was being taught and make sense of it. And if Moshe, who had the divine spirit speak to him, needed that space in order to construct meaning, how much more so us, right? Uh, uh, I'll translate freely. An idiot who learns from an idiot, right? That's, uh, that's me, <laughs> for example. Or maybe you too, if you're listening to me. Uh, an idiot learning from an idiot, that's how we learn when we're not divinely inspired. We, we try to make sense of the things we're told and we need a little bit of silence in order to make sense of what we were told. Okay, now I, I want to, um, to look at this from a completely, completely different angle, right? And maybe something I'm not uh, qualified to speak about, so just in, indulge me. Okay, if uh, if you think I'm speaking rubbish, then then that's okay, and uh, uh, forgive me. Um, but I'd like to to speak a little bit about psychoanalysis, and especially the system of uh, Jacques Lacan, where I think um, a lot of religious imagery is is well expressed by the way Lacan conceives of, of uh, how we understand the world. Um, so I'll, I'll try and explain as, as far as I understand Lacan. Lacan's uh, impossible to understand. Or, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just try and translate it into Jewish, okay? Because that's what I do, okay? So basically what you have is, is we're born with our soul is born with uh, uh, an understanding of God, um, a kind of access to the divine wonderfulness of the world. We're just we're in touch with that, and growing up as our minds are formed, lots of that is limited, 
okay and um and that kind of unlimited um everythingness <laughs> um when it's limited let's call let's call it uh halakha right <laughs> Uh, you're told you can't eat everything you want. You can't do everything you want. You can't have sex with whoever you want. You can't uh, um, uh, do whatever you want with your time. Right? All the all those uh, limitations and boundaries um, and language that we're given. Right? That that limitation, those symbols which constitute our world, limit um, the the totalness that we had before. And we're left with this kind of desire for something. It's a kind of what's left over from the, from the limitations is this desire for um, that wholeness that we had before. And uh, so sometimes that desire is, is manifested in desires for specific things, right? I want to fulfill the commandments, or I want to be a great rabbi. I want to um, uh, be rewarded for the for the mitzvot that I keep. Right, that you, there, there are specific desires, but that that's not the real thing. What we really desire is uh, is maybe to transcend these limitations, right? Um, but it's not it's not desire for anything, and if we ever achieved it, we we would actually we'd lose it, <laughs> right? Um, like if we ever achieved any one of these specific things that we want, if we ever became the rabbi, if we ever fulfilled all the commandments, we'd still be left with a desire for more because that more is is what we can can't achieve almost, um, and. Lacan calls that uh, that something else that drives the desire. He calls it objet petit a. Right? It says like uh, God or whatever the father figure. That's the autre, the the other, the big other, right? But we have this little other which he calls the petit a, the petit autre, the, this uh, this sense of wanting more. Um, that's what drives our desire <laughs> for for each specific thing, and that our verse in the Torah with this little aleph hanging at the end of the first word vayikra reminded me of the piti a, the the little a, the 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 surplus meaning, right? The the um, the sense of wanting more that drives our life and uh, whatever psychoanalysis psychoanalysts uh, try and deconstruct the soul and try and see how it works and everything but what I feel is is that's what drives religious life as well right it's not just halakha and limitations there is this um, these moments where we do translate transcend the system or the symbols and we get beyond uh, we got beyond even desire we, we, we sometimes we just access something big and fulfilling 
without being able to to put it in words because those words would be part of the symbolic order that we've just transcended and that comes in different degrees right there's a there's this is like a wonderful mystic uh um nirvana that overcomes the person and so on we've heard of it and if we're lucky we've experienced bits of it um and there's there's prophecy and there's all all these things that either we've heard of or we we've experienced um rambam maimonides describes 12 levels of prophecy okay and the final levels uh, the final level is symbolized by by moshe himself who is able to absolutely transcend everything right but what's interesting for me is that the first level the lowest level is also symbolized by moshe and what rambam calls the first degree of prophecy is an instinct or an urge to um to do something good to do something good and big right and the the example he gives is uh, when moshe at the beginning of his spiritual journey moshe sees uh he, he just sees people being oppressed he sees an egyptian being oppressed he sees um these girls being oppressed by midianites and he's a he's a refugee he has like no status at all and he can't stop himself from saving these girls from being um oppressed by these guys and that m- movement in him right, he's moved to to do the right thing that uh so rambam calls it prophecy i call it being called being called to do the right thing and that's when we're at our best right so that being called is really that's why it's at the beginning of the parsha that that's why it precedes any discussion of commandments uh that sense of I'm in touch with the right thing without being able to explain it that has to be at the root of any religious system. So with all of that I hope uh either it made sense and if it didn't I hope it gave you some ideas to explore uh the Torah by yourself and thank you thank you thank you for listening to me. and uh i wish everyone access to this inspiration this urge to do the right thing however it manifests in your life later shalom